Welcome to the Land Ethic Podcast, dedicated to naturalism, conservation, and stewardship. I'm Dylan Banyasco, a landscape designer and outdoorsman from Central Texas. I'm learning from individuals and organizations that are working to improve our relationship with land. Subjects may range from regenerative agriculture to ethical hunting and wildlife management. Please subscribe on your preferred app and follow Land Ethic Podcast on social media for updates, episode releases, and more. In the eighth episode of Land Ethic, I caught up with Shane Hardy, Director of Ecology at Stone Barn Center for Food and Agriculture. I think I can say that Shane and I are cut from the same cloth, and his passion for natural science is evident. We talked about the natural and cultural history of the Hudson River Valley, Shane's background in agriculture, animal husbandry, biodynamics, and the search for indigenous wisdom in North American land management. To clarify one point, the anti-livestock law I refer to at about 40 minutes in is a ballot initiative called IP13 from Oregon, filed for the November 2022 general election. It's received a great deal of attention lately because it would remove current agricultural exemptions in the laws that classify artificial insemination as sexual assault and stipulate that animals can only be eaten after dying of natural causes. Those laws, previously only relevant to non-livestock animals, would now include all animals in Oregon, effectively putting an end to livestock. To put it in perspective, there are about 1.3 million head of cattle in Oregon, And in a part of the country that's increasingly buying into synthetic meat alternatives, the ballot initiative, while seemingly radical, has elicited a large reaction from the ranching community. I wanted to make sure to address that and provide a little bit more context. But enjoy this episode. Please review, share the show, um, subscribe if you haven't already. Now to my conversation with Shane. Shane, thanks for joining. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Dylan. Oh, of course, man. I uh, I saw you speak, man, almost a year and a half ago now in yeah. A&M at the Aggie Workshop, and you were speaking about landscapes and ecology with our mutual friend Thomas Woltz, and um, I that's where I learned about Stone Barns, actually, and have been kind of fascinated ever since, so I'm glad I tracked you down. Yeah, um, that was a fun workshop. It's hard to believe it was that long ago. It was like right before all the COVID I know. pandemonium <laughs> at the world. So, yeah, I remember seeing Thomas right after that uh, up at Stone Barns. And he was like, what do you think about this whole COVID thing? I was like, I'm not sure what to make of it. And then like a week later, the world shut down. <laughs> <laughs> what What's it been like at the farm? Has it been uh, pretty shut down to the public? Yeah, it was pretty shut down to the public through most of last year. The restaurant um, was able to, starting in July, serve people outside and then serve very small groups of people in different areas through the winter. Um, But we had no public programming, which was, it was actually a bit of a nice breath. Um, Mm -hmm. I really enjoy engaging with the public and sharing everything that we do. But it was nice to have a year to really just focus on growing, focus on the land, focus on what we were seeing. Um, Just don't always have that at such a public place. So it was, you know, that was the silver lining to it all. 
Yeah, and it, I mean, nowadays you can put out content, which you guys have been doing, it looks like, putting out content on YouTube and things like that, and kind of keep people in touch with what you're doing without actually having them out on the farm. Of course, there's no substitute for getting out there and getting your hands dirty, but um, are, are you expecting that this summer you'll start opening up a little bit? Yeah, actually starting in May, we'll have some opportunities on the farm, especially for people um, who are able to come to the restaurant this next, we're doing these chefs and residents, which has been amazing, been having really incredible people um, from all different sort of uh, backgrounds of cuisine come and bring sort of their lens to use our ingredients and sort of draw their flavors from our landscape um and so this next one is a, a barbecue pit master named brian Furman out of virginia i mean sorry out of georgia and uh, i'm really excited and there's going to be a lot of people coming to this one and so they're you know um we'll great. have a lot of opportunities for them to like eat and then plug into the landscape but also a lot of different opportunities for the public will start to come back into play over the, uh, over the summer. I'm excited for that to happen again. I miss engaging with people. Yeah. Good. I, I, well, I won't make it this summer, but I, I've never been there and I hope to make it, uh, within the next year or two and kind of, um, visit a few people up there. And that's definitely high on my list. Um, but let's, it, Let's do kind of an overview for people who aren't familiar with Stone Barns and what you do. Um, if you could kind of just give the background, the the not only the cultural background, but also the, the natural history of where you are. But then also, um, and I'm sorry for the broad question, but uh, I also want to get your background and how you got there to your current position. Yeah, so uh, I guess I'll start a little bit with the natural history of the region. I actually grew up across the river from Stone Barn. So we're just a couple miles uh, from the Hudson River, which is a, a pretty significant estuary. It's one of the biggest estuaries on the, the, the East Coast, definitely in the Northeast. Um, that kind of defines the region. Um, and we are just south of what we call the Hudson Highlands, which is kind of the roots of of a mountain chain that was you know kind of equivalent to what the Himalayas are now back when North America smashed into Africa you know that I guess most of the Appalachians are sort of the remnants of those mountains but the Taconic yeah. Mountains um, which are now like you know little thousand foot nubs so they're they're nothing if you're out in the Rockies but it's pretty cool. So some of the exposed rock is, is, is like almost 2 billion years old, which is, Oh my gosh. It's some of the oldest exposed rock you can get to. Um, wow. So that's cool. I grew up, my dad used to make science videos growing up. So we would always stop at road cuts and look at the, you know, the granite or the nice or the sandstone and, and stuff. So it, it was cool growing up in a household that appreciated that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, Europeans have been here about as early as Europeans got to the Americas. Um, so uh, the actual land that that Stone Barns is on, I think, has been farmed by Europeans since about the 1600s. Before that, obviously, by um, various 
groups of indigenous folks, I think, you know, it was Lenape and uh, Muncie bands of, of uh, I'm okay. sorry, I'm sound like I'm so uneducated about this that it's no. embarrassing, but it's something that I really <laughs> want to dive into. Um, yeah. And so, you know, people have been living on and taking care of this land for millennia. Um, a lot of that I'd like to know more about, but it, you know, it's been in pasture and orchards for a couple hundred years at least. Okay. Um, we are up sort of in the Rocky Hills outside of Terrytown, New York, in the lower Hudson Valley. And uh, so it's pretty rocky, like, you know, rock fragments are like 15% of our soil profile. So, okay. you know, it's, it's, it's pretty serious. It's not less necessarily where it's not the ideal, you know, croplands, not your typical, not if you come from the Midwest or not, if you come from a lot of places from with, with nice flat stone free soil, Yeah. but there's a great climate for it. We've got well draining, soils that already have a good organic matter content and, and, you know, can hold organic matter decently. Um, and we've got four seasons and with, even with minimally heated greenhouses, we can have winter production pretty well. Okay. Um, so and what's kind of the, are there flagship crops for you? I know you guys have a really pretty serious diversification of what your uh, diversity of what you're growing but are there certain kind of, you know, star crops that just perform really well where you are? Uh, yeah, there's a lot. I mean, a lot of the brassicas do really well, um, especially going into fall and winter. So things like kale, um, cabbages, uh, different sort of Asian varieties of mustards and bok choys and you know, head, head, like Napa cabbage type things all do really well. Salad okay. greens do really well in the spring and fall. Uh, even though we got rocky soil, carrots do great. Um, a lot of root veggies do pretty good. Um, I think cause we've got good, good draining soil. Um, and then some of the things, you know, we can grow tomatoes and peppers good, but we deal with more sort of fungal issues and, um, you know, things like it's really hard to get a good sweet melon. Like you need it to be a little drier when they're ripening up to get the sugar content high. Um, so some of those things are, are trickier. Um, okay. yeah. And you already, you had worked at several farms in the area previously. Is that right? So you kind of already had this knowledge. Yeah. I, so I started on farming right out of college uh, at a grain and dry bean farm. So I majored actually in philosophy and comparative religion. So one, when I got out of college, I needed any job <laughs> because that didn't really funnel me right into a high demand yeah. job market. Uh, but I, I took a lot of sort of environmental ethics classes and stuff like that. So I was really thinking about humans role in the world and how can we live in uh, how can we provide for our own needs while, you know, coexisting with the rest of the planet and the rest of the natural beings that need, depend on the natural resources we have? Um, and I just wanted to work outside. 
So I went to, I graduated from Ithaca College and there's a lot of amazing farms outside of Ithaca. And a friend got me a job on a grain and dry bean farm. And I thought it would be a cool job for a year after two after college, but within a few weeks I was hooked <laughs> and started obsessing over crop rotations and, you know, cover cropping and building soil and started reading books. I think one of the sort of pivotal, like mind blowing books early for me was one straw revolution by, um, Oh my goodness. Uh, Fukuoka. I cannot remember his first name right now. Okay. I don't know that book. It's an amazing book about, he's just a radical guy. So the book is kind of half philosophy, but he was able to do a, just a no-till rice and barley farming and orcharding with almost no pruning, very natural ways in, in Japan. Um, with amazing yields and you know it was i was definitely like one of those books where it was like wow everyone why doesn't everyone just do it like this <laughs> you know there's like so many subtleties to what he actually did that made it work were you working um, for people that were on board with you know experimenting and trying out some of those techniques or were you kind of doing a little bit more traditional uh farming yeah, so it was an organic farm and it was growing grain and dry beans for primarily human consumption. And in the area, most grains were actually being grown for animal feed. Um, but it was definitely, you know, we relied heavily on tillage for weed control. Um, and I can, yeah, they were really open. They let me on a five acre field try, um, you know, no tilling. I just basically put a bunch of rye in a big manure spreader and scattered it into a stand of. <laughs> clover and they were basically like i'm pretty sure it's gonna all <laughs> not gonna work but sure have at it kid which is a huge uh amount of trust and i'm super thankful for it and, and sure enough it did not work <laughs> because <laughs> you know there's so many uh things going on down in the, I, I actually remember going back out into that field and looking and finding almost all of the seed holes hollow the, the the coat the seed coat of the rye berries was still there and the insides had been pretty much eaten by insects because huh. it was like down in the thatch of like a thick clover stand it was definitely a learning experience and and yeah. you know showed me that there was a lot of learning i had yet to do to become a, a farming master uh, from there i worked on a couple uh i worked on a family friend's vegetable farm i managed a small organic, a 250 member organic um, CSA farm for another nonprofit in the lower Hudson Valley. And from there, I got to know Jack Algier, the farmer, farm director at Stone Barns through reaching out for advice. And I just really wanted some mentorship. And, and it seemed, I mean, after getting to know Stone Barns and, and being able to visit it and talk with Jack, it was pretty clear that it was going to be a great place for me. So I left the other place in the hopes that a job would come up there <laughs> and it did. And and I got in the door, started actually as the compost manager there. Okay. Um, but my interest has always been more holistic. Like I, you could call it holistic or you could call it scatterbrained, um, but more of a generalist, you know, I, what fascinates me is the way all the different parts fit together the way 
soil health relates to crop rotation and relates to minimizing waste and how biodiversity is related to um, you know resilience in the face of climate change and pollinators that could pollinate your crops and defend you from you know have good predatory insect habitat to feed on problematic pests and you know i it's just it's just so endlessly fascinating to me the the you know everything yeah. in the natural world and farming yeah likewise i think uh, it sounds like we have similar kind of um worldviews and similar scatterbrainedness uh, I I also constantly call myself a generalist, and I don't know if that's um, a necessarily a good thing all the time. Because sometimes, when I speak to people who are just an expert in one subject, I'm like, "Oh man, that's impressive!" And you're getting so much done. But I'm just interested in everything, <laughs> and yeah. know a little bit of you know, a little bit about a lot of things. And uh, but that's okay. I think that's kind of when you're dealing with natural cycles, it's just too complex. Um, but let, let's talk about a little bit about Stone Barn's kind of mission. And mm-hmm. um, I know that there's a history with the Rockefeller family, but I don't know a whole lot about how the land came to be um, what it is now. So can you tell me a little bit about that? And, and like I said, kind of the mission and values now? Yeah, sure. So in the late 1800s and mostly in the early 1900s um john d rockefeller the sort of original um you know entrepreneur who who started the rockefeller legacy um started buying up land in this area and amassed a couple thousand acres that really became the the original their estate so kaikut which is the original estate and house of of the rockefeller family is just down the road from Stone Barns. Hmm. Um, and the family has always cared tremendously about uh, about land and about the natural world. I mean, the gardens in there are amazing. Um, they have always, you know, invested heavily in land preservation. So I think that was sort of just steeped in, um, in, in the family's culture. Uh, so in the thirties, they, you know, there, I think there was a lot of tenant farmers on the land because a lot of the land they bought up was definitely farmed. And you can look at aerial photos back to the early 1900s and there's lots of little orchards and crop fields scattered into what are now some of our pastures and, um, adjacent areas right around the, like right across these hills, uh, these forested hills from us. And, um, in the thirties, they, they wanted to build a dairy farm. Um, so they put in on, and, and that became stone barn. So they, they built this amazing dairy farm, these amazing buildings out of stone. And, and it wasn't just a dairy farm. I think it was part of a larger master plan for, for this park, basically, yeah, um, yeah. that would have that in the middle of it. Cause the, uh, the Olmstead brothers there, you know, they actually designed, the buildings and the carriage trails that run through Rockefeller State Park Preserve, which surrounds us. Um, so I was going to bring that up uh, because I did see their name involved, and I know um, I'm just in love with those estates. Like um, I've got a little bit more experience at the Biltmore Estate, okay, and it's just 
you know, these magnates, these oil magnates and, you know, train shipping steel magnates who got involved with visionary um, people like like Olmsted and um, Gifford Pinchot. And you see kind of the the beginnings of a lot of our modern land management at some of these places where they just had ridiculous amounts of money and time to throw at conservation. So I love that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it was a good mission that, I mean, they they always wanted that land to be beautiful and part of being beautiful meant healthy and vibrant and, um, you know, human beings working the land alongside forested preserved land. Um, so that, that's kind of, that's been what that land has looked like for quite some time. So functioned actually what is now Stone Barns functioned as a dairy farm for a couple decades. And then in the seventies got kind of revitalized as a, as a cattle breeding operation, they bred Simmental beef cattle. Hmm. That was primarily because Peggy Rockefeller, who was um, the wife of David Rockefeller, so that it was the youngest grandson of John D. Um, she was very passionate about agriculture, about preserving American farmland and, and that legacy. And I think uh, if the, one of the founding, if not the founding member of American Farmland Trust. And so and part of part of that, I think she just wanted a, a really a farm she could be involved in right at home. And the dairy farm, I think it kind of gone defunct a little bit it hadn't hadn't really been functioning um as it had been in the 30s and 40s and maybe early 50s and so yeah that that became a working simmental breeding operation from the 70s all the way until 2017 but when peggy rockefeller uh passed away in the 90s late 90s um her daughter Peggy Delaney and her husband uh, David Rockefeller wanted to do something in her honor and donated the actual the stone barns and uh, a 90 acre parcel that surrounded it to become and and sort of you know paid to revitalize the buildings and set it up as a nonprofit and for a restaurant and wanted to have something that would really encapsulate what she was working towards so something that would express something that you know healthy American agriculture, not, not necessarily like the way it's always been done, but like looking towards the future, yeah. what, what could American agriculture be? And then a restaurant that would serve as a, a way, another way for people to access it. And I, I think the vision originally was, was maybe fairly simple. It was like a cool demonstration farm, a place, a way to honor the buildings and honor her legacy. And I don't think they necessarily knew what it would become but early in those in those conversations they met dan barber who was obviously a, a sort of a creative culinary genius and um and then were introduced to to jack algier by elliot coleman who is um you know an, another sort of small organic farming guru in the northeast i'm sure many people who listen to this will, will have heard of him and I think the two of them just had a, a, a synergy right away. And um, but what this place could provide for the world, especially in this moment of, you know, getting back to bioregional food movements and sourcing locally and farm to table, 
it, it just sort of they 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 rode that wave and you know yeah. it's evolved continually but that's you know the mission now is sort of working to drive change towards an it's not I, I may not say the like actual tagline that's on the website and that's often evolving and in flux but we're working towards an ecological food culture that's so, actually exactly what's on the website right now okay. <laughs> you nailed yeah. it <laughs> yeah and um you know there's a lot to that that's massive so that's you know that's for everything from the agricultural systems to um, conserving the natural resources that support those agricultural systems to being able to generate food for us in perpetuity to the cuisine and, and um, you know, the, the part that's, that's, I think, difficult and the part where I'll, I'll say we don't necessarily have as much expertise and really have a, a long way to grow and are really trying to grow is how does that, how, how can we work in a way that it actually serves, you know, a lot of different people. So how do, how can it serve everyone? And and it's not necessarily that we're going to be the ones who know best, but how do we leverage our resources and our um you know our voice to sort of uh lift up other leaders. And that that's yeah. something that we're exploring now. I mean, I, I'm definitely not going to say we're the best at it, but I think it's something that we're really acknowledging is 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 a very important direction. You know, yeah, I, don't sell yourself short. I mean, I think the uh, it's from what I've seen. Again, I haven't been there, but um, the people that I've spoken to and have been kind of following Stone Barns for a couple of years now, uh, it seems like you guys are a leader in innovation and just in open mindedness and, and kind of a thought leader. Definitely attracting uh, people who are. I, I just watched a film actually gather which is about uh, Native American food sovereignty. And one of the, the chefs was giving a demonstration at Stone Barns. And, uh, you know. Nephi, was, right? Yeah, that's Nephi right. Yeah. Craig, yeah. Um, Nephi Craig, I believe is his name. Yeah, um, Nephi Craig. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so I think as kind of a, a hub of innovation and a vocal proponent of holistic management, uh, you guys are doing a great job. Um I do want to know, as as ecology director, was that a position that you kind of created, and are there are there big goals of yours that you're trying to implement still? What are you, how have you changed your management with that goal of ecological food culture in mind? Yeah, it is a position that kind of evolved out of my interests and our needs. I would say. And definitely, you know, definitely pushing. It wasn't like something that was posted and then they're like, we got to find this, you know, yeah. definitely many conversations and pushing and nudging and, you know, um, but I think what so one of the main things that drove it is um, when uh, when David Rockefeller passed away, he had still owned that they, they so quite a while back, uh, the Rockefellers had donated the majority of that land to become Rockefeller State Park Preserve. So like 1,400 plus acres around Stone Barns, that's forested park preserve with all these amazing carriage trails designed by the Olmstead brothers running through it. Um, but there was still about 300 acres of pasture that he kept and that Hudson Pines still ran on. That's the Simmental breeding operation I mentioned. 
Okay. Um, when he passed away, he wanted to donate that land to the park and dissolve sort of the, they sold all the breeding stock and wanted to offer stone barns, the right of first refusal to manage that land in partnership with the park. So knowing that was going to happen over a couple of years, we drew up a conservation action plan with the park preserve and that outlines conservation goals, indicator species, different metrics we might measure to, to see if we're working towards meeting those goals or not, um, as well as the sort of manage, you know, the, the nitty gritty of like management activities that are allowed and, you know, that sort of working relationship. So out of that document sort of came a need for us to actually track and measure and be able to report back. So that was sort of the, the sort of like concrete need to study the impact of our management on the land. Mm. But it's evolved into something, I think, much richer than that. It's something that we always wanted to do. And, you know, folks that I work with, like Laura Perkins, and uh, who's a horticulturalist, and Jack Algier, and, um, you know, many other people who have worked here over the years have always, like, deeply loved nature, know every plant you come across, know the birds, you know, forage for mushrooms, like deeply value ecology and pay attention to it. Um, but it's a little bit more intangible than food and our niche was always food. So it was harder to sort of like, you know, as the organization tried to, to focus and have a, a strong impact, it was sort of hard to bolster, um, another program specifically around around science so there was sort of a feeling that you know our there's other places that do a lot of research is that really our role you know and this was like okay here's the opportunity we have an obligation and we're going to flesh it out so yeah. i think that are you familiar with um alan savory and holistic management absolutely yeah so i'm i this is kind of a strange way to start because it's certainly not um based on Alan Savory, but we do it primarily the primary way that we manage those 300 acres of, of pasture or grassland. We try to think of it as a grassland rather than pasture, because then we're talking about an ecosystem, not a, not a production field. Mm -hmm. um, even though, you know, it, it's both. Um, and so as I, we were taking on that land and I was going to be involved in, in the management of it, started digging into Alan Savory's stuff. And I really liked one, the particular way that he framed um, the way the ecosystem functions and the sort of like four ways in that, that four things that really need to be going well. So there's like the biodiversity or community dynamics. There's like the soil mineral um, nutrient cycles. There's the water cycles. And then there's the energy flow. And we kind of designed our, our monitoring to, you know, we got much more specific, but around making sure that those core ecosystem functions are, are doing well and, you know, maintaining or improving, or if they're getting less, um, yeah, we could change. So, so we study a, a lot about the soil. We do a lot of soil carbon sampling, both like, we do 
a couple hundred points with this tool called quick carbon that's you know in the top to the top like zero to six inches and six to 12 inches we do we have a, a 16 transects where we study carbon down to a meter we look at soil microbiology um we test water infiltration rates we've got 72 different plant transects on the field with 10 points each um we've got 40 points where we do bird bird counts um we have 18 more transects in the in the forest where we run goats to try and manage invasive species and um, pigs right and pigs goats and pigs yeah so well that was one of the the things that i really was interested in coming from a place where pigs are um a huge problem for agriculture here yeah, in Texas. Invasive species, right? yeah they're incredibly invasive and cr incredibly um prolific at uh, reproducing and so we've got you know something like two million pigs doing um i say we now i'm in colorado but uh they're doing tons and you know probably i i don't know the numbers but millions in agricultural damage so i, I am fascinated about how you're using pigs productively because it's just you know I th i've always thought of them as the opposite uh what is their role in terms of management yeah Pigs definitely like their nature is I, I hesitate to use the word destructive, but it's hard to not use that. They're like yeah. a I kind of almost think of them as like a wildfire. They're like or like a like a <laughs> you know landslide or something. They are have an intense impact. Um, but they are natural creatures that evolve. So I always look back to like what you know what was their role in the ecosystems that they evolved in. Um and, you know, if you look back to the sort of forests of Central Europe, where a lot of modern hogs in, in the West come from, sort of a different track of, of breeding and evolution in, in Asia. But, um, you know, I think, first of all, there was probably fewer hogs over more space. But I think they bring a little disturbance, sort of a punctuated disturbance into yeah. a climax, you know, a quote, climax ecosystem, a late succession ecosystem, an opportunity for um, things that thrive on disturbance. A lot of our forests have been disturbed pretty extensively through logging, through, you know, other invasive plant species introduction and stuff. So... <sighs> You know, it's I will say it's not it has not been easy to work with pigs in a way that we feel is 100 percent constructive. Um, but we're tracking that now we're tra tracking plant species. Um, we're trying to focus them on areas that have a lot of invasive species, knowing that they're going to really disturb the soil. So if it's a nice patch of native spring ephemerals, we're going to try to not put them there. Mm hmm. That being said, they did get put last year in a in a in a spot in the woods that has invasive species, but also had a bunch of natives. And uh, the trout lilies and New York ferns came back in in abundance. So the the ferns are pretty tough, and the trout lilies. I I've seen this actually a bunch where the pigs have gone. They seem to thrive on on disturbance. So we're monitoring. We'll probably follow up with goats. I think it's kind of a 
like a one-two combo. Interesting. Go, yeah, the the pigs will definitely root up the ground, and you know they're they're not going to take down bushes. I mean, eventually they will, but by the time they take down brush, they've like wrecked the soil. Yeah. So we put them in, in, in small areas and move them quickly and try to not bring them back to a certain space for a couple of years. Okay. Yeah. Intense is the right word. I think they, in terms of disturbance, like um, in my experience, hunting pigs, it's always so different to watch them move through the landscape. Whereas I'm watching a white tailed deer pick its way slowly and quietly. And it's, you know, it's ears are up. It's looking all over the place. The pigs just are on a mission. Every time I see pigs, they're just running to wherever they're going uh, from A to B. And, you know, they get there, they eat fast, and they're out. And they go back to where they're going. They're just, uh, it's a totally different kind of behavior. And I think it lends itself, like you're saying, to their disturbance. Like, they just come in, rip up the ground, and they're out. So I imagine you kind of have to rotate them. Are you using portable fencing? Yeah, we use some portable um, hog net from Premier one um and it works great we used to use just well we've tried you know just poly wire like two or three strands of poly wire actually what we do now is we usually do hog net which is is more of like a, a visual barrier for them it's hot too but they can you know they'll root and and sort of keep piling stuff onto it until it flops over <laughs> so we'll have hog net and then on the inside we'll run two strands of poly wire right where they're sort of where their nose would root and and their forehead so it keeps the the other fence uh the hog net clean and and keeps them in pretty good we just got to keep a charged battery on it <laughs> and you're raising them for meat as well right for the restaurant yeah, so we're raising heritage breeds. So we've raised a lot of breeds. One that we really like working with is Red Waddle, which I think, I think, a, I think it was bred or or actually or maybe the biggest population of genetics came out of Texas. Interestingly oh, enough. Okay. Um, but yeah, they. So the other side of that, and this is less sort of ecosystem out on the land and more sort of like broader, like waste cycle and energy responsibility is that we feed them entirely things that would have been waste otherwise. So we don't buy conventional grain for them. We feed them spent brewer's grain that we get and we ferment it. Um, so when it comes out of the, the kettle, they haven't put the yeast in yet. They've steeped most of the sugars out and what's left is like complex carbs and protein. Okay. And then we get that, we ferment it and that's a big staple of theirs. We also get past sell by date dairy from a local uh, farm, from a local supermarket, um, scraps, veg scraps from the restaurant in our veg field. And, um, you know, they forage a lot in the main season. So it's, it's actually a pretty robust diet. A lot of people really told us we wouldn't be able to do it. But it, it just it just didn't make any sense because that's literally how pigs have always been raised forever until about 70 years ago. <laughs> yeah, just uh, scraps and waste, right? Yeah. And so we've found that between the heritage hogs, running them outside in the forest where they can eat wild plants and root in the soil and giving them this really diverse diet that's actually really very seasonal except for the, the spent brewer's grain. Um 
the pork is delicious and we did have to change breeds we couldn't really use we used to raise berkshires which are a heritage breed but they're they're like a commercial heritage breed and they they tend to be leaner we needed ones that that put on a little fat so the red wattles and asaba crosses tend to put on a little more fat have a little more intramuscular fat um and yeah the the product has just totally changed and and it's it's amazing i'm really proud of that program nice like at the at the kind of higher level um i am really interested in animal husbandry right now i think i've been learning a lot about animals role in these systems and like i grew up not really understanding how animals could be part of a sustainable uh, holistic management system. And I've spoken now to a few people who are using um, bison, cattle in in ways that are, um, I think, similar to what you guys are doing. But there's also, I don't know if you're paying attention to what's going on in the Northwest right now. Um, there's some political kind of issues with, uh, with raising... Um, cattle and with meat consumption, people actually mm-hmm. trying to pass laws against it, and really? uh, yeah, encouraging people to. I think in um, Washington, or maybe it's Oregon, encouraging people to uh, eat a, a more vegetarian diet, which we can all, I think, um, a lot of people can get behind, but they're not understanding the role of animals in the landscape. They're just kind of looking at um, basic numbers on how traditionally cattle have been used and. I think there's a happy medium where you can consume less meat and you can also consume better, more humanely, more sustainably raised meat. So what is what is your philosophy on not only cattle, but uh, you're using pigs, sheep, goats, ducks, I mean, overall kind of animal husbandry and their role in this system. How do you how do you think about them? I'm so happy you asked me this question. I love talking about this question. You might have okay. to tell me to, to be quiet. <laughs> I, um, I think that, first of all, one distinction I think is really important to make is the question or not of whether the question of whether you eat meat and the question of whether animals have a role in our agroecological systems are, are separate. Hmm. They are conflated a lot. You don't have to eat meat, and but if you don't eat meat, that doesn't mean animals don't have a role in stewarding the land. Show me an eco an ecosystem without animals in it, right? You know, so I think it's important to 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 draw that. If you have an ethical for for some ethical sort of reason, you just you just don't want to consume that animal. I get it. And no animal should be mistreated. But when it comes to ecosystem health and climate change, it's a different story. And it's much more complicated, or I shouldn't even say complicated. It's much more complex than the, than, than the pictures painted. And I think it's, it's hard to get that across on the package of an impossible burger or a grass fed package of beef, you, you yeah. know, and, and so, but you it's know, also true that we can't sustain what we have been doing throughout the 20th century, uh, which is monocropping of, of plants and 
also of animals just raising, you know, factory-fed meat um, in really horrendous, disgusting manners. Yeah, and and so of course I I agree that that's not sustainable and it's not ethical, but that doesn't mean that there's no place for for animals in a system or in our diets. Absolutely. Um, that the arc, the way almost all meat is that's raised now is like the way we're doing it for the most part. Now, 95, 96% of what's out there is inhumane and really bad for the planet. I will acknowledge that. However, outlawing meat consumption is so far from the right thing to do. Like, so grasslands co-evolved with grazing animals that's not negotiable that's not something we can like sort of debate that's that's natural history there's so much data to support that we have also killed off most of the animals that would have sort of naturally managed and grazed on those grasslands and and you know plowed under most of the the native grassland which some of the most incredible ecosystems i was just reading up on the tall grass prairie last the week and i think i was reading somewhere that uh I, it, it depends on how you measure these things like whether it's total ecosystem or it's per acre or per square meter or whatever but it was i think the tall grass north american tall grass prairie was like one of the most biodiverse ecosystems after like the Brazilian rainforest. Yeah. So and I don't probably I don't know our largest how. carbon sink as well. Yeah. Um, and when we're talking about turning that like, like plant-based diet often means rather than feeding that corn and soybeans from that plowed up tall grass prairie to animals, you're sort of grinding that up and treating it a certain way and feeding it to people and saying, this is, this is the solution to the climate. That land that most of that stuff come from like impossible and beyond stuff. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the majority of that, I don't think it's organic. And I don't know what's in those things. (laughs) It's, it's yeah, it's weird. Um, We're talking about the impossible burger and the, um, the kind of meatless, um, protein i don't even know what they call themselves beyond meats and impossible meatless meats i don't know <laughs> i mean so but what here's one thing that i have learned from from the ecology work that we're doing land that is managed well with animals can be incredibly biodiverse that land that conventional corn and soybean land and even more organic corn and soybean land in the Midwest is is actually has kind of devastated an ecosystem, and even feeding that to, feeding that to people is a step better than feeding it to animals. Um, but it doesn't mean we, sh- you know, a, a certain percentage of that should really go back to being the incredible biodiverse carbon sequestering ecosystem that it was. So on like an on our pastures, we have measured, I think, around 105 different bird species, uh, many of which nest in the grasslands and are totally sort of dependent during the season on the insect populations out of the grasslands. 
we're starting a DNA uh, barcoding method of monitoring insects in our pastures with the University of Guelph, which should really tell us about the insect biodiversity and in some cases, the relative abundance of insects. Um, and, and that will be fascinating. We have found, I think, 150, maybe close to 200 species. I wish I had these numbers at the tip of my fingers right now, but um, don't worry about it. Yeah, 150 species of plants on our plant transects in our pastures. Um, there's coyotes, there's bobcats, there's lots of mammals. We've seen uh, fisher prints in our, you know, there, there's, there, like these pastures are brimming with life. And so, and we're also measuring carbon in between 2019 and 2020, our pastures, you know, and this was on data collected on over 16 separate pastures and really well planned out transects to track change over time. Our, our average organic matter in the pastures increased 0.64%. And that meant actually, I think around well over 2000 tons of CO2 pulled out of the atmosphere and stored in our soil in that one year wow. change. Now you need longer term data to really draw long, like really significant conclusions. And we need more data across more farms with rigorous methodology. So I'm not making any sort of universal claims, but I know a lot of other people who have these experiences and it's not, it's not unique. And I'm working with many other groups like the Northeast Carbon Alliance and open team um, to, to try and get these collective data sets together so that we can make stronger claims that, that can't get torn down as easily. But I just know from personal experience and now increasingly from data that using animals, we can actually enrich grassland ecosystems. And I think that if your concern is biodiversity loss, if your concern is resilience and climate change, if it's erosion and loss of topsoil, if it's animal, you know, like reducing animal suffering, I mean, in a, a lot of ways, it, I mean, this is this is your answer. And you don't necessarily have to eat that. It's just that where's the other market? Who's going to pay for me to graze this land to manage an ecosystem? We don't yeah. do that. We play, we pay park rangers to manage a park. We don't play, pay ranchers to manage a grassland. Mm. That's something I would like to see us change. How do you value the stewardship? You're asking the farmer to do it all on the price that the sort of bottom line of what people are going to pay for beef in a supermarket. And um, Th that's, that's a really interesting point. Thinking of farmers and ranchers as stewards rather than producers of a, a single product. They're really working to enrich an ecosystem and, you know, uh, keep it economically viable. But I think that is kind of a mindset switch for a lot of people. I mean, yeah, a, a huge mindset switch. But one last point I want to make on that is if you're a major concern of yours is sort of the suffering of animals. I feel pretty strongly that those fields that generated the corn and soy for your impossible burger 
caused more animal suffering or just more animals that never even got a chance to exist because there's no habitat for them than, than the pastures that we have our animals in. Now, we treat our animals very well and they're happy. And yes, eventually one day we do kill them for food. Mm -hmm. Animals die in nature and it's actually not usually a very pleasant death. You're a hunter. You, you, you know this stuff. Yeah. And so I think people have a real, real strong discomfort with death in this country. And, and it's just made it so that people, they, they, we don't have a concept of, of like, I'm alive. I am consuming things. Other things are dying. Eventually I will go. And the fact that I am not eating an animal does not necessarily mean I am causing less suffering to animals and sentient beings you very likely could be causing more if and and even if um i think maybe the more valid argument is what you touched on which is you're causing complete demolition of habitat which you know even you're you're not even giving them the opportunity to thrive uh in a lot of ways and so even if you're not directly drawing a line to uh you know, farming equipment, killing all the rodents and, and other, you know, life that lives in those fields, you can argue that every acre that is monocropped is taking the opportunity of life from, you know, from these, from these animals. So I think that it's not always an easy argument. There's a lot of misinformation, um, obviously, in, in today's day and age. One thing that I think people are more on board with now is the complexity of ecosystems the complexity of soil management and i'm really glad to hear that you guys are monitoring your soil in that way and taking measurements because um that's something that actually thomas we talked about thomas waltz earlier um he kind of made that point to me made me understand how important it is to take measurements along the way and that's something they do in their practice a lot they start off every every project with like an ecological inventory mm -hmm. and throughout the project take data to make arguments for what they're doing. And it seems like you guys are doing something pretty similar. Is that um, part of the part of your role as ecology manager or is that was already in place at Stone Barns? No, that's something that, yeah, that I kind of developed along with other people. I really can't take sole credit for it. For me, it was more like, I know we need to do this. We're talking a big game. Let's back it up. Not to mention, I'm just curious. I want to know who's out there. I want to know those plants. I want to know how they're moving around, how they're changing, who's showing up, what are, you know, who, wh which birds are visiting. Like, let's, let's get out there and know this. And so I feel like it was a steep learning curve for me. I didn't get trained as an ecologist or an evolutionary biologist, but I, you know, I kept pushing and reaching out for guidance and stumbling my way through until, um, you know, a coworker, um, a couple of years back, Leah Puro had a good research background and helped sort of tighten up the basic, uh, you know, methodologies to, make the you know make the protocols repeatable over time and help us get data that could be tracked over time and then we 
uh, met this amazing guy, Elijah Goodwin, who was doing bird research for the park and started helping us out with bird counts and now has become an amazing colleague and is the ecology and GIS manager and sort of manages all the on the ground research. So he's a PhD evolutionary biologist, an amazing ornithologist, um, just a really talented scientist and lover of nature. And so he's taken it to the next level and helped us build out an ArcGIS um, sort of customized platform for us to track all the data in. Um, so we've got, you know, a really organized holistic data management strategy and monitoring strategy for all of that. So it was not in place. It's been a struggle to build up as it is to start anything you don't know anything about. (laughs) Um, It's not that we weren't looking. It's just that we weren't, you know, you have to do it different if you're going to, to make claims and, and share it. Yeah. I think there's also, you can get caught in the trap of like data paralysis where you're just collecting data. You want to, you want more and more and more data to be able to draw lines. And eventually you kind of get to a point where you're like, all right, we're never going to know everything. We're never going to have all the, the variables. And at some point we've got to make decisions and, and put things on the ground. Totally. Right? There was a point uh, about end of 2019, we sort of went into a, a, a redesign process with Terra Genesis International um, around this program. And one of the things that came out of that was we really focused the questions we were asking. What do we want to know from this data that we're collecting? Um, and, and got, you know, there was sort of the general categories of, are we improving water quality like are we improving plant community dynamics but from that more specifically it was like you know how are the species shifting in this pasture related to our animal movements and the density of our herds and how long they're in a given spot so how do we know that if the soil types in these two different fields are different you know like can we have enough repetition across a couple different fields in the same soil type. So let's put our transects in the same soil type on these three fields. So there's enough sort of repetition to isolate our management as the variable that changed the plant communities there. And yeah, I think that defining, defining the the questions that you really want to answer is paramount. Mm. And, and often where, where I think monitoring um, fails compared to more, like compared to research is that you're just collecting massive amounts of data. And it's like, for what? Yeah. Where I think research fails is that it isolates so many variables that often it's not that applicable to the real world. You know, when you're like, okay, I just only need to know how orchard grass changes when one cow bites it and then lets it rest for 45 days before coming back. Well, that never happens. You know, that's not a realistic scenario. And that's obviously an extreme example. And there's, I think, I think scientists are learning how to design what research that embraces complexity. That's one thing I've learned about this. Really? Oh, that's good to hear. I, I was talking with um, a fellow named Mark Vorderberg and he appeared on the podcast a couple episodes ago. And Mm -hmm. we were kind of talking about that, 
push and pull between science as a model and the true complexity of nature and um it's always something i struggle with like ever since studying ecology in in school it's always a struggle for me to kind of look at one thing one particular aspect of the ecosystem in a vacuum study that one thing it's like that's not how nature works you know yeah um so that's good to hear what kind of do you have any examples of what people are doing to complexify their uh their modeling um i think that so for example with like this group open team that we work with which is uh hosted by wolf's neck center up in maine but it's a huge group of people participating in different levels whether there's farms there's sort of people who are designing you know tech tools to help farmers track their soil quality better there's research scientists there's sort of advocacy and policymaker groups and stuff and so i think that a lot of the discussions we've been in is how do we make uh field methods that are standardized enough for our data sets to 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 talk to each other and be sort of crunched together into bigger you know like a these 20 farms in the northeast had these results and yet flexible enough to adapt to the fact that these farms have totally different soil types this farmer's going to hit rocks when they go down and so they can't use that kind of probe um and uh you know, different management strategies and, and different sort of, you know, labor demands. Yeah. And it, it's not easy, but I think that there's a lot of committed people who are really smart, who are working on this. And we made a lot of progress uh, on specific field methods for studying soil carbon across different farms with a, a really awesome collective of people. Um and what so comes that, that's out of like, that, sorry to interrupt, what comes out of that I think often is those core tenets of like even no matter what ecosystem you're working in, here's what you need to be doing to protect your soil kind of a thing, right? Mm-hmm. It, yeah. Yeah. I think like Gabe Brown and um, Joel Salatin, these people who they're they're setting examples of a system in completely different parts of the world, but they're really getting toward the philosophical components, the large high level thinking of how we should be, you know, managing land. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's principles that you can follow. It's whenever we get too prescriptive, we end up oversimplifying things or (laughs) just, you know, installing a system we saw elsewhere that was designed in the context of that particular place Mm. rather than using that principle and looking at our place and our circumstances our ecology our local economy our local resources and and finding and creating using that same simple principle and creating something unique to to that space um yeah i think um I recently I spoke with a biodynamic farmer, Darren Joffe, who's the author of Citizen Farmers, and I didn't know much about biodynamics. I still 
don't know a whole lot, but it, aside from kind of the the pseudoscience of some of it, I actually, once I dug in, I was pretty interested in just the leading tenets in terms of uh, the way that they're worded. Talking about energy flows, it kind of, at first, your, your guard goes up, you're like, what is this? You know, this seems a little bit... Um, a little bit hippy dippy, but then you get into it and you're like, okay, this actually has some very valuable, um, just logical guidance to it. What's your experience with biodynamic farming? Are you, do you practice it at all? Have you practiced it? I am certainly not a biodynamic devotee. I'm sort of, uh, at different times of my life have been very drawn to it. And other times kind of, um, you know, kind of, it gave me pause because of a, you know, just the, the sort of pseudoscience or, or what have you, or B. And I think this was really, it was people misinterpreting it or, or interpreting it too literally and telling me like this thing as though it was truth when like the, 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 the actual writing or the lecture it came from was, was like a, a parable or like a metaphor or something. Yeah. So, I mean, we at Stone Barns, I like we're not, I wouldn't say we're like a biodynamic farm. We don't actually certify really in any way, but we do base our like seeding dates on the moon, our seeding and transplant dates on the moon. We usually seed like two days before the moon. Um, and we put our transplants in at the half moon. The sort of theory there is that the, you know, that's a very rough act on a plant and that the you know the draw of of water and sort of life force on the in the new and full moons is is you know more it's sort of if you're breaking little rootlets and stuff when you're transplanting it they're going to like leak more and not heal as quickly in those full and new moon moments okay um so there's some of that stuff i want some of the stuff that really has always clicked with me from biodynamics is the idea of thinking of as your, your farm as a whole organism mm. and the sort of like, I think that brings an element of, of respect for the whole and the holistic thinking. And I think some of the other practices, um, although they're, they, they may be fairly esoteric and, and odd at times, I think bring a reverence to what you do and, sort of make you pause for moments and like walk through the field, like, you know, spray, like sort of flicking some of the preparations off onto the plants or the soil with like a a whisk or or broom or, or, or twigs and stuff. But I've done that. And like, there's some of the best moments on the farm. Like I'm just walking Mm. quietly sort of like sprinkling holy water, so to speak (laughs) on the plants and, and like having a real connection with the place, seeing things I wouldn't have noticed bringing care to it. And it makes me want to each time I engage with that place, like keep that care. So I think there's that sort of more subtle, but practical result that comes from it. Definitely. I, uh, when I spoke with my brother about this, who is in viticulture, he was kind of telling me about, well, biodynamic farmers, um, he doesn't practice it, but he was saying they actually do get really good results. Yeah. But in his mind, um, 
a lot of it comes from the fact that if even if these very specific preparations, like you're saying, aren't necessarily um, what's giving you those results, it more maybe comes from thinking of the farm as an organism. And if you're paying really close attention and lovingly yeah. taking care of your land in the way that biodynamics asks you to, yeah, then you know it's going to be a positive net outcome no matter what. So um, yeah, I'm. I'm really interested in, and learned a lot from that conversation with Darren, um, who is doing some really good work all across the country. So I encourage people to check out Darren Jaffe. Yeah, um, I've heard of him many times, and I don't know him that well. I haven't heard him speak. I got to go back and listen to that podcast. I'd cool, love yeah. To hear him. He's also got a TED Talk. You can see he's he's putting out his own podcast. Um, he's got a lot of stuff that you can that you can listen to. Um, cool. Going back a little bit to something we touched on early on, and I don't want to grill you on this, but um, the the sort of indigenous knowledge side of things, I do think you guys are in a really unique position to um, promote and investigate some more of the, maybe the lost indigenous um, land management, just because it was an early point of European contact, a lot of thriving... Um, groups in that area you mentioned the Muncie I think I looked um I think I saw Iroquois Mohican people who had lived on this land successfully for a long time is there any um any recourse that you see to kind of find some of that lost knowledge and and any interest in that at Stone Barns I mean I have tremendous interest in learning that I mean I I want (laughs) I, I mean what better way easy. to take care of the land than the people who like um, co-evolved with it over millennia? Um, yeah, it's something, I mean, just in total transparency, I get kind of anxious when I think about it because I, I can't ignore the massively tragic history that goes along with it. And, and I don't want to approach it as like, like, yes, I do want that knowledge, but like, if I want that knowledge, like what are, like, how do, how do we also like make things right? How do, how do we, you know, I mean, like that's massive, but I, you know, I can't. So, so I guess I haven't figured out how to approach it and how to approach, you know, the folks who, who did live here or the end, you know, the sort of um, descendants of the folks that lived here and, and how to go about forming a relationship that okay. would actually not just continue a cycle of appropriation and, and bring some benefit to them. Well, um, I'll let you know if I find anyone I'm, I'm actively looking for people like chef Nephi Craig and yeah. people who are, um, focused on native food sovereignty because it's in my mind one of the biggest issues facing native communities is that they've been completely separated from their food systems and yeah. um, that knowledge was not just lost over time it was forcibly um, taken away through re-education and things like that and so people who are um, I'd encourage everyone to watch the film Gather uh, it, it tells several stories of people focused on that kind of thing. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm not, um, 
I think you guys are doing an awesome job. I just it just occurs to me that there may be some opportunities to um, to promote that kind of awareness and and maybe find some people who have um, I don't know if if anything just like recipes. <laughs> I don't know I don't know where to start. I I understand it's a tall order. Food is probably a good place to start. Um, I mean, we did just have uh, a pretty amazing chef in residence, Johnny Ortiz, out of um, New Mexico. So it was, you know, it was really he was bringing his cuisine and his culture, and it w- it was awesome. I actually got the opportunity to build an adobe oven, oh, you know, called cool. an horno, um, which is the word for oven in Spanish, but. Um, I got to the chance to to build that with him and talk about, uh, you know, the relationship between food and land. And he's like, like he has a little farm that he's starting and crops he's growing and and how much you know. As a chef, the whole system, he you know that that sort of I think made him re-explore a lot of his roots. Um, he's he's got a little restaurant called Shed Project out in uh, New Mexico really cool and you know he's gotten into earthen building through building these ovens and and through renovating like the restaurant and so like the relationship to the land is through food it's through growing the crops it's through the animals he has it's through the actual building materials um so that that was a really cool way and and you know a a great um learning experience for us. And I think, a, I think a, a rewarding experience for him too, and sort of a good opportunity to um, get his message out there. Um, and so, yeah, I'd love to keep working with more indigenous folks and, and helping, you know, if what we have to offer can in any way support the amazing work they're doing and we can grow out of that and, and learn to support it better that would that's awesome i i recently got the book uh the sous chef by sean sherman do you know okay. that no it's, no, a, it's no. a cookbook um of sort of indigenous you know exploring indigenous food ways he's out of minnesota but he's got a little a great like intro sort of of his life story but it it's awesome and he's oh, is it he's like incredible. sue sue indian yeah oh yeah okay, cool. it's really cool. clever yeah the sous chef all right yeah, that's a good lead. <laughs> and then, you know, I mean, Nephi Craig, when he's come here to teach at the Young Farmers and Cooks conferences is amazing. I mean, he's just like an amazing chef and like such a passionate teacher. And like, I mean, that that guy's a hero. Yeah, I'm trying to track him down for a podcast if I can. Yeah. Um, well, Shane, I think I've, I've taken up uh, quite a bit of your time. I really appreciate you agreeing to talk with me, man. Um, ever since I saw you speak at a and I've been wanting to catch up with you. So um, this has been great. And um, I really look forward to finally making it to Stone Barns at some point, And hopefully we can follow up again in the future. Yeah, if you come out, you got an open invitation. I'll <laughs> show you all around. We'll, we'll find a way to put you up and... Uh... Let's stay in touch before you make it out here. Thanks. Yeah, I, I look forward to it. I'm definitely going to um, touch base touch base with Thomas and a couple of other people in the Northeast, and maybe someday I'll come do a, a podcast tour. That's the goal. Do it. <laughs> come visit totally. you guys and a few other people up there. Uh, but, yeah, really encouraged by your work, and uh, I'll definitely be, be following what you're doing. Uh, is there anything you want to promote or any upcoming kind of – 
events or, or anything going on on the farm you want to promote? <laughs> well, I think that one of the coolest things we've got going on right now is the chef in residence program at Stone Barns. Um, so starting next week, we've, uh, we've got Brian Furman, um, who's like this amazing barbecue pit master. And then there's a, you know, a series of four incredible chefs who I'm not, I'm not even quite sure if it's all like who they are is all public yet. So I'm not going to say who they are, but just stay tuned to the website. There's amazing people, um, to, and, and to tune into their work really like we are doing cool stuff and obviously check us out, but also really check out all these folks. These are amazing people doing, you know, amazing work. And, and I think that the communities that are surround them are probably also really cool. Um, yeah. So I think tune into that and keep, you know, check out our website at stonebarncenter.org. Um, and public programs will start to slowly pick back up over this summer. So there's going to be more, more opportunities to engage. And there's, if you're in the area, there's, there's passive ways to uh, walk around and go through some of these ArcGIS story maps we've made and, and with self-guided tours. Um, yeah. So there's very cool. You know, lots of good lots YouTube of videos up as well yeah, um, with you and um, with, Jack Algier and people kind of explaining what you guys are doing. So I, I went through a few of those and found them really fun. And definitely people should go to the website and just see the architecture, if nothing else, of these beautiful stone barns. Um, but yeah, thanks, man. Um, look forward to connecting again in the future. And um, best of luck with you guys kind of reopening to the public. All right. Thanks, Dylan. You have a great night. I appreciate this. All right. You too.